RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. Hundreds of courses, thousands of lectures, tons of stuff that you want to know. Try it for free for one month at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 286, Duet. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we investigate deeply, picking apart an episode of Star Trek and search for morals, meanings, messages, and seeing if the whole thing stands up today. This week, Duet, the one where Kira catches the Butcher of Galatep. Or does she? John's got trivia coming up in a bit, but first... But first... A word from the clothing section. It's the Mission Log fashion line. Inspired by lines from Mission Log, lines like, You see, Timmy? And here's a look at my robot guts. We've got a friend named Carl. Yes, we do. We've got a friend named Carl. How about you? See, what Carl does, actually, is uh, Carl is a designer. He's an illustrator. He's, uh, he's a very talented art type of guy. And he's been making T-shirts for a very long time. And one day he actually sent us a design for a t-shirt. And, uh, and then years later, because we're like that, we said, Hey, Carl, how about some other t-shirts that maybe we could sell to people, uh, you know, people who listen to Mission Log? And, uh, thankfully he said yes to that. And so now that's how we have things like, um, well, like the Lieutenant J shirt, by the way, really quickly. And, and I'll get over it. Mm-hmm. I just found out this week that Lieutenant J not going to be at STLV this year. Aww. So. Yeah, I know. So yeah. we can't all gather around her in our Lieutenant J shirts and have our picture taken with Lieutenant J. But you know what we can do? We can all still gather around and have our pictures taken in our Lieutenant J shirts. I like the sound of that. Yeah. Well, not enough to actually buy a shirt. I know. That's fine. Whatever. <laughs> Here's the thing. You can show your support for the silicon side of life. You can show your love for the Ditalics Mining Corporation. All kinds of stuff, both new designs that our friend Carl has done, as well as old designs like Ethos, Pathos, and Logos. Oh, yeah, they're there. And you can still be cool as Kirk. What? What? <laughs> By the way, Ken, after that, I think that uh, Carl should have his own T-shirt that just says art kind of guy. <laughs> okay. So, you know, he should make his own. Yeah. So you can get T-shirts. You can get stickers. Oh, wait, what's that other thing that you can get? Tapestries. That's right. The Tapestries. So much Mission Log and Trekkie goodness in the Mission Log Podcast shop. Just go to missionlogpodcast.com. You click shop at the top of the page and then, boom, you shop. And send us a picture with your new Mission Log swag. You get to support the show and look cool doing it. Click shop at the top of the page at missionlogpodcast.com. As we said a moment ago, John's got trivia coming up in a moment. But first, I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discover Documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember... We may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And with that, we turn it over to trivia for this, I'm going to guess, less than trivial episode. Oh, am I jumping to the end already? Don't let me do that. Don't let me do that. Just go ahead. Yeah, launch, launch straight into trivia, won't you please, Mr. Champion? Today's episode duet was written by Lisa Rich and Gene Kerrigan Fauci. Now, Lisa penned the scripts for Next Gen's Liaisons and DS9's Move Along Home. This is the last of her Trek credits. And, same story with Gene, she co-wrote the scripts for Liaisons and Move Along Home, along with Lisa Rich. But while Lisa and Gene got the story credits for making the pitch, it was Peter Allen Fields, who we have discussed, who got the job of scripting this episode. He gets the teleplay credit. 
Now, this was directed by James L. Conway, and this episode is the first Deep Space Nine credit for James, but the name may be familiar to you. He directed three next-gen episodes, those being Justice, The Neutral Zone, and Frame of Mind, and he'll be around for a total of seven DS9 episodes, then he'll jump over to both Voyager and Enterprise. So this story was influenced by The Man in the Glass Booth by Robert Shaw. Uh, It was a novel, which then was adapted as a play. Uh, The novel came out in 67, the play in 1968. And then it was filmed as a movie in 1975, directed by Arthur Hiller and starring Maximilian Schell. The lead character in that movie is Arthur Goldman, a Jewish man who survived the Nazi death camps, but is later accused of being a Nazi himself and arrested and sent to trial. It is revealed that Goldman faked dental records in order to force the trial. So if you want to check out the movie, like I said, the movie came out in 1975, stars Maximilian Schell. More importantly, though, the historical context of that play and therefore of this episode centers around, well, a whole host of Nazis who were captured after World War II and put on trial. But specifically, one of the most famous was that of Adolf Eichmann. So we'll probably talk more in depth about that in the discussion later in the show. But please, if you don't have a basic understanding of the aftermath of World War II, when it came to finding and then trying many of the people who are responsible for the worst atrocities, read an article, watch a documentary. Uh, It's enlightening in the context of this episode, and it's good for your historical literacy. So like I said, I think we'll come back to some of that as we talk of the mechanics and the storyline for this particular episode. Let's talk about guest stars. We say welcome back to Mark Alimo, and we've already discussed Mark and his four appearances on Next Gen in different roles, including the Cardassian Gull Masset in The Wounded. And we first met Gull Ducat in Emissary, the pilot for DS9, and we know that we will get a bit more of him as we go forward with DS9. We also have a quick appearance from a returning Trek player. Norman Large was in TNG Unification 1 and 2 as the Romulan Neral, and he was also in Dark Page. And here he's playing the Viterian captain. We'll see Norman again a few times in this and another role on DS9, then a quick stop over on Voyager. Oh, and blink and you'll miss her, but Robin Christopher plays Neela, the Bajoran computer technician working with O'Brien, She's primarily a soap opera actor, and we won't say too much about her because, hey, you'd never know. She might show up again. Tony Rizzoli plays the Bajoran Canon, and his on-screen credits only span from the mid-80s to the mid-2000s, but he has roles that cover feature film and TV guest spots. Genre appearances have him in Babylon 5 and Alien Nation. This is his only Trek appearance. And finally... Harris Yulin appears as Eamon Maritza. I don't think anyone listening would be surprised if I told them that Yulin has a broad background in theater. Take a look, though, at some of his feature film roles. He was in Scarface, Ghostbusters 2, Training Day. His TV work goes back to the early 70s, and he's had recurring roles on shows like 24, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Nikita, How the West Was Won, and guest roles just about anywhere you look. This is his only Trek appearance. From the Internet Movie Database, Ben Coleman, a mystery writer, meets Laura Kelly, a caterer, and it is love at first sight. The ups and downs of their romance form the basis of this series. Oh, wait. That is the 1987 television series, Duet. Prologue. Just a normal day in Ops while Kira and Dax are chatting when a hail comes in from a freighter. On board, they've got an ill passenger, someone with Kalanora syndrome, who needs medical attention. He'll be beamed into the infirmary right away, but Kira says she really wants to be there. You see, the only people with Kalanora were exposed during a mining accident at Galatep, a labor camp where the Cardassians held Bajorans. Kira helped liberate that camp and it's important to her to meet one of the survivors. Only, this survivor is not what she expected. He's not Bajoran. He's a Cardassian. Kira calls for security. Act 1. The Cardassian makes a break for it, but is stopped by Odo. 
Kira insists that he's not just any patient. He's a war criminal and needs to be locked up. Sisko objects this Cardassian, Eamon Maritza, isn't wanted for anything. But Kira explains that anyone with Kalanora syndrome was at the Galatup labor camp, and a Cardassian there would have overseen unspeakable brutality toward the Bajorans interned there. She saw exactly what they did. When Sisko speaks to Maritza, he says that's not him. He's just a file clerk who happens to have a similar condition, Patrick syndrome, and he'd like to be on his way, thank you very much. In an adjacent holding cell, though, a Bajoran who was tossed in for being a disorderly drunk bristles at the sight of him. Later, Dr. Bashir confirms to Sisko that Maritza has Kalinora. There's no way he has anything else, and he definitely would have contracted it from Galatep. Around this time, a call comes to Sisko from the Bajoran Minister of State that they're just standing by until he hands over the prisoner. Um, yeah, about that. Sisko doesn't really know if he can hold the guy. The minister says, no problem. This is Kira's thing. You don't need to worry about it. Act 2. Sisko approaches Kira. He'd like to take her off this investigation and leave it to Odo. He's not as personally invested, and frankly, Sisko thinks Kira is driven by a personal vendetta. Kira says she needs to do this for the victims who can't. With that, Sisko relents. Off she goes to interrogate the prisoner, just as that ornery Bajoran, Kanon, is being let out. His parting shot, though, is the request for a front-row seat when he presumes they'll hang Maritza. Oda tells Kira that so far Maritza's background story checks out. He was living on Karat too, teaching at a military academy. But when she goes in to probe further, she confronts him with the lies he's told. He does have Kalinora and must have been at Galatep. Yes, he was, but his position there was that of a lowly file clerk, an exemplary one, but not the military mastermind that surely Kira was hoping for. He must have witnessed what happened there, though. She calls them atrocities. He says there were no atrocities, only accidents and harsh conditions. Maritza says the reputation of the labor camp was something they manufactured to strike fear into Bajorans. She says he's lying. And he says that she's lying about her intentions. It's not justice she wants. It's revenge. Act 3. Gull Ducat on the line calling for Commander Sisko. Sisko evades a little, saying they're just giving Maritza medical attention, and they would rather wait to hand him back over once they verify his identity. Gull Ducat isn't forthcoming, though, with any help, only a threat that Sisko will be held responsible if any harm comes to Maritza. Dax approaches Kira with the same refrain she's hearing from Sisko and Maritza. Is this investigation really about truth, or is it about an unfulfilled need or satisfaction? If Maritza is punished without good reason, it would be a very hollow win. Hey, remember O'Brien? He still works here, doing some computer work with Bajoran assistant who, never mind... Kira's got an archival photo, the only one from Galatep that has the person in question in it. It's blurry, people are kind of blocking each other, but those DS9 computers are something special. They can clean up the image well enough to reveal... Maritza looks nothing like the guy they have in jail. Further enhancement reveals that the guy they do have bears an amazing resemblance to the commander of Galatep, Guldarheel. Kira can't wait to confront Guldarheel. He seems so smug about it, energized now that the truth is out. The more he admits, the more the atrocities he actually owns with pride. To him, Kira and the Shakar were just an annoyance. A Bajoran court may put him to death, but he says let them. What he accomplished with the extermination of so many Bajorans can never be undone. Act 4. Odo gives Kira a drink. She's overwhelmed with the hatred she feels for Darheel, and she's shaken by his enthusiasm for the brutality he inflicted. She also feels belittled by his dismissal of the Shakar, which raises a question in Odo's mind. Why would the leader of a forced labor camp know that Kira was a member of a Bajorid resistance cell? He shouldn't. Back in, Kira goes. 
Goldar Heel says he regularly got termination reports thanks to Maritza. He knew who was a part of the Shakar, but now he's got some questions for her. Odo steps out of his office to see a small group of people assembled. They were prisoners at Galatep, so word is out about the man being held here. Quark also knows, and he lends his sympathy as only he can, heartbreak over what they've been through, and also wanting to know if they gamble. Odo stops by to see Dr. Bashir with some news about a transmission from Korat too, a few months ago asking for information on Major Kira. The request came from Eamon Maritza, and he doesn't know why, but it might help if the doctor could request any medical information about Maritza. Worth a shot, anyway. Now the information is coming swiftly to Odo, because who should be on the line for him but Gold Ducat again, this time as charming as he can possibly be. He can't give Odo any files related to Gold Darheel. You see, Darheel is dead. Ducat attended his funeral. Well, that certainly complicates identifying the man they have in custody. Maybe, just maybe, if Odo had some documentation he could work with, he could possibly exonerate the man they're holding. No one wants to see their Cardassians embarrassed, right? If Odo has access to Cardassian files on Darheel, it might help. Darheel is drilling away at Kira's record. How many Cardassians did she personally kill? She says she was defending her people, and that's what Darheel says he was doing for the greater good of Cardassia. If it resulted in the genocide of Bajorans, it was just in a day's work. Just then, Odo sneaks in the news to Kira. The man in the cell wanted to be caught. Act 5. Guldarheel is dead, according to Cardassian records, which could very well be more smoke and mirrors from Guldakot, except for one detail. Their prisoner has Kalinora. The real Guldarheel did not. Other records corroborate that when the mining accident occurred, Darheel wasn't at Galatep. Furthermore, Maritza retired from the military academy at Korat too, left his possessions to his housekeeper, and specifically, booked passage to a Bajoran space station. All of this was done on purpose. Kira's indignant, though. This man needs to go to Bajor to stand trial. Enter Dr. Bashir with some news of his own. The medical records on Maritza reveal one more thing. He's been treated with a drug that improves dermal resilience after plastic surgery. Time for another visit. Kira asks Goldar Heel if he's feeling all right from his Kalanora. He says yes, as well as he can be, but she wants to know how he got it. He says she knows how he got it, but Kira reminds him that when the mining accident occurred, Goldar Heel was back on Cardassia. Darheel is outraged. He's the butcher of Galatep. He wanted nothing more than to stay behind and finish the job of slaughtering every Bajoran left in the camp, not like that weak, pathetic file clerk Maritza. And then Darheel changes, as he describes the file clerk hiding in his bunk, weeping for the prisoners who were dying around him. Darheel becomes who he really is, Amen Maritza. So consumed with guilt, he calculated to let the cowardly Maritza die, in a sense, to become Guldarheel. If he's forced to stand trial, he can force Cardassia to admit the truth of what happened during the occupation of Bajor. It's his way of dealing with his conscience. Kira can't let that happen, though. She can't let one more good person die. They've contacted Koratu, and Maritza will have people there to help him. He wishes he could have forced his people to face their past, to atone for what they've done, if it would help them face a better future. On his way out, the Bajoran Kanon sneaks up from behind and shoves a dagger into Maritza's back, killing him in seconds. Kira, in horror, asks why, and Kanon says because he was Cardassian, and that's enough. No, it's not, Kira says. The End Yamik Sauce <laughs> I know that sounds non sequitur. I'm sorry, but they mentioned it. Yeah. And you didn't. And that's weird to me because uh, Yamek sauce, John, I don't know if you know this, uh-huh. uh, goes on food. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. And he had the stew. He had that, that 
delicious Cardassian stew. Which he says is good. He says it's good. It's good for replicated stuff, but he didn't have yamak sauce. It would have been better with yamak sauce. And you know what I was thinking? I know a guy. Well, yeah. I know a guy who knows a guy. Well, okay, I did know a guy who knew yeah. a guy. Yeah. About three steps really... removed. But but look, if you need a self-sealing uh, self stem bolt, that is. Oh, you're troublesome on set. You know that? Yeah. You're messing up that line. <laughs> I know. That Don't fire me. Self-sealing. Don't fire me. It's, mm. uh, it's terrible, really. Yeah. Um, suggestion here. It seems like a DNA test would have made everything move much faster. Oh, you shut your end this episode quickly mouth, mister. I know, I know. But it was interesting, the the number of backtracking they did. Like, well, he's got this disease. He definitely doesn't have this other disease because we do this deep, deep analysis of his lung tissue and all this. Just little, little DNA, (laughs) little DNA. Maybe. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. Interesting that we had a new computer tech who isn't the same computer tech from last time, doing precisely less than the computer tech from last time. The last time, she got to pull the little rods out of the HAL-like computer in ops, and this one, not not so much. I feel terrible because I didn't realize that she wasn't the same person, although (laughs) I also feel terrible because she's sitting there and she's working away, right? Mm -hmm. And and O'Brien's like, try this. And I just wanted her to turn and go, do you want to do this? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Well, it's the whole thing about you have to give people dialogue. You, you never it, – it's like Kirk calling down to say, switch to auxiliary power. Scotty, Scotty is so on top of that. Right. He's so on top of that. Yes. But, but thank yeah. goodness Kirk called to remind him to do the thing that he knows to do in his sleep. Right, right. Speak of that computer, though. Oh, man, how many times in sci-fi? Computer, enhance image. Uh Okay. All right. Here's the thing. I was actually willing to let it go this time, and I will tell you why. And I've always had, and, and I think it this means that I'm actually willing to forgive Blade Runner at this point as well, because the thing Whoa. that's always bothered me the most, right, mm-hmm. is you could take a flat picture, yeah, and then somehow move around the things inside the picture. Yeah. But as our technology has gotten better, I realize that there's tons of stuff hidden in pictures, right, that we don't know about. So there could be tons, I mean, that we just don't see with the naked eye. So there could actually be tons of digital information stored in that picture. It's sort of like when you go to your computer now and you're looking through pictures and you can see thumbnails of everything. What if every physical picture we're handed now is actually just a thumbnail of the information that's available? Mm. And so mm-hmm. you put it in, the computer is able to read a lot more information, is actually able to go around behind the guy that's standing there. And I'm not trying to apologize for this episode. It's just occurred to me as our technology advances that could actually be a thing that we're able to do at some point. Now, it's not going to work like for a picture from 1910. Right. 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 Yeah, You're not going to be able yeah. to go into like something that was made for a stereopticon and suddenly yeah. get behind a thing that you, you know, that you've pretty much only got those two lenses for the stereopticon or, you know, the one brownie that somebody used or something like that. <laughs> right. But right. pictures taken in the 2200s, 2300s may well have more information than would just be handed to you on a flat piece of paper. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I mean, uh, on an iPhone, as of recording the show, the front camera has a 3D sensing chip in it. Right. So you're getting uh, theoretically a lot more information than you would with a typical, you know, like a, a Polaroid from 1986. Right. Definitely, definitely. Um, still, there's a guy in front of the guy. But, <laughs> but, but that's but, okay yes. because we don't know what that picture was taken with. Here's what I'm saying. Yes. On CSI, this does mm-hmm. not work. On DS9, mm. this might work. Okay. Very good. Very good. Uh, I'll give it to you. Still, that one shot was blurry. <laughs> and then she said, <laughs> uh, make that not blurry. And yeah. then there, it's just not blurry. It's yeah. Not blurry. And Dax yeah. is like, oh, I can do all kinds of things with this picture. Yeah. Don't ask me, you know, questions about validity. But sure, I can make him not blurry. Give me a minute. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of nice uh, character moments to point out in this episode very clearly, uh, but I do want to mention one here, and, and that's the verbal cat and mouse between Odo and Goldicott. Because I thought it was a nice contrast to Cisco and Goldicott. Cisco is a little just like evasive, like, okay, well, I, I'm, I'm just, uh, I know that we're not going to do anything here to get this guy in trouble or necessarily appease you, but we're just going to hang out for a little bit. Odo, Odo's on this. Because I, I love the mention of their history together. 
Right. And Goldicott said, oh, we used to play all these games together. It was like, we played once and you cheated. <laughs> and now I'm done. <laughs> it was a nice, nice moment to contrast that earlier one with Cisco and, uh, and, and deepens those, uh, those characters a bit. From the Internet Movie Database, a professional karaoke hustler reconnects with his daughter, and a bored suburban businessman turns out law karaoke singer, among other plot lines. Oh. I apologize. That is the 2000 motion picture. Duets. We'll dive deeper into duet in a moment, but first, a word from the Great Courses Plus. It really is what it sounds like. Great courses covering all sorts of subjects from health and fitness to the art of debate to understanding calculus to sci-fi. That's P-H-I, sci-fi, science fiction as philosophy. So for nearly 30 years, the great courses sold courses, one at a time, boxes and boxes of tapes and CDs. But hey, it's the 21st century now. Those courses and new courses all the time are available to stream now, letting you watch or listen to as many as you want. I got to tell you, I like the listening. Uh, the Great Courses Plus has added an app recently for iOS or Android. So instead of having to watch, which you can do across all kinds of devices, your smartphones, tablets, smart TVs, things like that. But you can also listen, you know, like listening to a podcast. So you can learn or, you know, get to know more stuff uh, while you work, while you drive, while you're at the gym. Any place that you do podcasts is great for a great course. So Ken just mentioned this month's featured course, Sci-Fi, Science Fiction as Philosophy. It's presented by David K. Johnson. And this course tackles some really big philosophical topics using science fiction as a jumping off point, as a tool to illustrate, and as a way to dig deep into philosophy. There are lectures like The Matrix and the Value of Knowledge, Contact, Science versus Religion, Star Trek, TNG, and Alternate Worlds. Now, if you want to hear more about the courses, David was actually a guest on episode 33 of Mission Log Live, so go give that a listen. 24 lectures in that course, all waiting for you. But of course, you don't have to hit all of the lectures. You can pick and choose from this course and seemingly countless others, and you can get started for free. Mission Log listeners have access to one month of lectures from The Great Courses Plus at no cost. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mission log. Sure, it's a long URL, but you're getting a lot for it. So here it is again, <laughs> thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mission log. Life is full of stuff you have to know. This is stuff you want to know. Oh, my turn can start today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mission log and a huge thanks to the great courses plus for sponsoring this week's show actually you listened to uh, a couple of uh, his lectures by the way yeah one of them has been messing with my head a lot (laughs) (laughs) they are they're so good yes yeah they are they're very good i love them and and one of them has been messing with my head. So, uh, not a lot of funny ha-ha between um, yeah, your recap and this part of the show. Can I tell you that... Uh, well, I, I don't need to tell you this part. That you and I, when we alternate weeks writing the recap, we see it as an opportunity very often to, to slip in a little thematic joke or a, a pop culture reference. I absolutely did not have that in me. Yeah. And um, when it came to our our little post recap break, um, I I had a really hard time writing down anything. It was a a pithy, funny, I, you know, some observations about what's going on, like the computer enhanced image. But I, I just, yeah, I I didn't have it in me. This is a really heavy episode. Here's what I will tell you: uh, two words that are always good for a laugh. Okay. Yamak sauce. Yeah, okay, that's it. That's, <laughs> that's it. it. I just That's going to be your fallback from now on. 
Um, there was actually a line in this episode that made me laugh. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought it may have actually been one of the truest things to happen in this episode. Okay. Uh, it was when, um, it was when Odo and Quark were talking about the survivors of Galatap and Quark, Quark mm. says mm -hmm. Galatap. Imagine living through that hell hole, the pain, the sorrow. Do you think they like to gamble? And it made me laugh immediately. Yeah. It made me laugh. But here's the thing. I, I mean, it said a lot about Quark. And I, and I think it actually said a lot about everybody on the planet. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> anybody who was outside yeah. of a particular conflict, I think it says uh, like an amazing thing about them or an amazing amount about them. And I don't know that any of us can actually be faulted for this. At the same time, it makes me feel terrible. So as we record this. Authorities in Thailand are working to free eight kids and their soccer coach from a cave, right? Yeah. Um, four of the kids have already been recovered. Um, and I'm not going to make light of their situation at all. Uh, the, uh, the other nine people are in real danger. The people who are going in to help them are in real danger. Hopefully, by the time anybody hears this, they're all safe and sound. And that'll be a heartwarming story that we can look back on. Here's the thing. It, it's not quite right to say that the world is hanging on what's happening with them. Mm -hmm. And I know this because I've done a lot of work since then, since we heard that they were caught in those uh, caves yeah. or in that cave. Rather, I've gone out to eat a couple of times. I've hung out with you. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. life life has gone on. Uh, yeah. I, I Like I say, I've done work. You care about those. I mean, we talked about this like a week ago, I think. When yep. it looked like they might be in there for as long as four a month. And I, and, and I know that you've gone off and done other stuff as well, right? Yeah, of course. That's, yeah. that's what we do. Um, yeah. I've marveled at the story of these kids and their coach. And I've thought, I've thought once or twice about how many kids have starved to death all over mm -hmm. the world just since those kids got trapped in the caves and we all started hearing about them, right? Yeah. Elon Musk came forward with ideas of how to save the kids in the cave. The Thai military has mobilized support came from all over the planet to save 13 people in sensational peril while countless others have starved to death since those guys got trapped in that cave. Yep. I did podcasts. I went out to eat. You and I have done fun things. Yep. I think Quark's line may be one of the truest things to happen in this episode. Terrible, horrible things are happening all the time and he's got a job to do. Yeah, and his job. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of like preying on these people, but it's not preying on these people. Somebody walks in with a lot of money. Quark says, wow, I wonder if they like to gamble. Somebody walks in having just been beaten up. Quark says, wow, I wonder if they like to gamble. I mean, Quark's uh, Quark's doing Quark. And there's something it's terrible until you realize that's what we all do every day. How was your day today? I was terrible. I missed the bus. And that made my day absolutely horrible. Yeah. And a bunch of people starved to death. And a bunch of people got shot. And, you know, all kinds of terrible things happened. There was just something about that. There was something about that line. In an episode full of horrible stuff, I even found the, like, the one comedic moment mm. truly funny. And at the same time, no less, well, I won't say no less horrific, but horrific in its own way. Yeah. Well, I, you needed to have a line to break the tension in the episode, and and obviously that line can only belong to Quark. <laughs> you had to give it to him. Um, so I'm I'm glad it was in there. The, the first time I heard it, actually, I thought it was funny, and then I felt bad for thinking that it was funny. But then uh, on multiple rewatches of this episode, I felt the same way that you did. Um, that it it just sort of painted the picture that life is still going on around all of this stuff and for better or for worse he's detached from it because quark sees the world in only the way that quark sees the world um so yeah i i got nothing to add to that uh other than i i agree i agree that, that there is a a a disturbing amount of truth to that you know but it, it was necessary to be in there um so let's talk about the uh the the big themes in this episode uh, i mentioned in the in the trivia kind of what inspired this episode and i have to say that you know i spend a good part of my week looking up trivia and reading stuff that that uh, is in the books about deep space nine and you know where necessary contacting people who can shed a little more light and this week i did very little of that and i did a lot of reading about the aftermath of world war ii um 
because so much of this story is told in obvious parallel to the stories about Nazi concentration camps. And by having a character like Maritza, there's a specific kind of story about the meticulousness and cold-blooded efficiency of that part of the, the Nazi war machine. And it also leads to a common refrain that was central to trying former Nazis in those post-war trials, the, the line, I was only following orders. And it's we get to see two sides of this in the Maritza character and in the Gul Darheel character. I think it's a, kind of a fascinating stroke of brilliance to have both of those guises in one person. Um, because, first of all, he does a masterful job of playing both of those sides, you know. Um, Maritza is the guy saying, I, I'm just following orders. I'm just a guy doing my job. I'm just being efficient at keeping records. Goldar Heel is a guy taking delight in what he's doing. He's the true believer in the cause. Mm -hmm. And, um, and Maritza recognizes that as being the horror and totally willing to take the fall for that as a uh, to, to sacrifice himself to make that point to uh, to to the people who who still need to learn a lesson from what happened during the the Cardassian occupation. Um, I found this to be such a it is very on the nose, but such a a smart way to address these ideas about uh, about responsibility, and then how this plays on. Kira and her personal sense of vengeance and what is just, you know, she says, all I want is to see him punished. And if he was at Galatep, he's already guilty. I think you and I both actually pulled that, that same line that just, just the guilt of him having been there just already makes him guilty. Um, well, she mm -hmm. says, as far as I'm concerned, if he was a Galatep, he's guilty. They're all guilty. Yeah. She says, yeah. which actually, so then can I ask you yeah. why he didn't end up on Bajor? I mean, they find out that Maritza is Maritza. They find out that he was a file clerk, yeah. not the butcher that they'd ex uh, suspected him of being. Should he have been let go? And and I guess the other question I have, you and I talked about this earlier this week, so yeah, I'm hoping yeah. you can actually cite what you were talking about. Yeah. Um, would he have been let go? Well, so here's the thing. I think that if you were to put this in a real world context, if this really were someone who was a, a bookkeeper at a Nazi concentration camp, Mm -hmm. That person probably would have been interrogated much more deeply and probably would have been put on trial. Dramatically, for the purposes of this story, I think this is the right decision. And in fact, if I had been in the writer's room when this was being written and this was being kicked around as what to do, I think they made the right decision. I would have fought for that ending. Because what's important here is that Kira recognizes her own uh, uh, presumption and her own jumping to a conclusion here. She's got to learn something. She's got to show compassion. This story needs to end this way. But in real life, what I found so interesting reading about the way these trials took place is that you had, well, you, you had a, a military court, the Nuremberg trials right after World War II. And that was overseen by the, the combined militaries of the United States, France, uh, Soviet Union, and uh, England. So you had two, two judges from each country who then heard the testimony of all these, some high-ranking, some lower-ranking people from the Nazi party. And some of them were immediately found guilty and some of them were immediately executed. And some were found guilty of different versions of the crimes that they had been accused of. So some were put to death later. Some were found guilty of certain crimes like uh, Albert Speer, uh, Hitler's architect. But the distinction was that for somebody like Speer, his name was actually found on documentation from 1944 with people within Germany plotting to assassinate Adolf Hitler 
thinking that, well, we could appeal to Albert Speer. So that was some indication that uh, to at least the people who were overseeing the trial, well, maybe he wasn't completely dedicated, even though he was a friend of Hitler's, even though he was high ranking. He's also somebody who later showed remorse and showed that he understood the impact of what had happened. There were other people who were put on trial who absolutely did not, who did not show remorse. And that's why you, you look at, um, uh, as I mentioned before, the, the later trials, um, when Adolf Eichmann was captured and uh, put on trial in Israel. He's somebody who was found guilty, who was put to death. He, he was found guilty in 1961. He was hung in 1962. The important distinction there is that he's somebody who, very much like Goldar Heel, was quoted in 1945 as saying, I would gladly, and I, I'm paraphrasing here, but he, he said, I would gladly, I would go to my grave smiling, knowing that the deaths of five million people were on my hands. Because he was a true believer. He truly thought that what he was doing was right. He was completely dedicated to the cause. So even in that time, from, from 1945 afterward in the, in the later trials that, that were happening in the early 60s, they were able to distinguish. And, you know, we're dealing with fiction here, so we're, we're, we're kind of filling in the gaps of a fictional character like, uh, like Maritza. And, and then what Gold Darheel is or is supposed to represent. Um, it's quite possible that if you were to follow, if you were to follow it to its logical conclusion and say, all right, Maritza does go to Beijing or he does, he does go to trial. If it was anything like the trials here. He may actually have been found guilty of a lesser crime. Um, which may not have resulted in him being put to death, which may have resulted in something else. But if it's any comparison, and this episode is very much a comparison to what happened right after World, right after World War II, I, I, I stop short of saying that, yeah, he would have been let go. But like I said, dramatically for this show, I, I think it is right to let him go. Because what we're exploring here is compassion. What we're exploring is Kira's journey, not the specific real-world mechanics of what happens to this criminal. Can we talk a little bit more about the real-world mechanics? Yeah, let's do it. I'm wondering about the importance of having it be a Bajoran who interrogated the alleged Cardassian war criminal. Yeah. I mean, personally, for their relationship, I think it was important that Cisco let Kira handle the investigation. Mm -hmm. You once said we were friends. I mean, this was a vote on his part, not only to not only to let her you know, do the Bajoran thing that she wants to do, but to believe her when she says, I will do this the right way. I will do this properly. Yes, I want to see this guy punished, but more than wanting to see him punished, I mean, she's saying implicitly um, if not explicitly, is I want this to go by the book. I want this to be right, and I want to be there for it. Yeah. So I guess what I'm asking is more from a 30,000 feet perspective, if it had been Odo and Odo hadn't found this, is the problem then that the Bajorans say, well, of course, Odo didn't find it. Odo didn't want to find it. Plus, he worked with the Cardassians for quite a while, so who knows how he actually is. Conversely, had Kira found him guilty, the Cardassians are going to say, well, of course, she's going to find him guilty. She was a member of that that splinter cell that, that wanted to kill all the Cardassians anyway. Yeah. Talk to me about talk to me about this situation in particular. I think, and, yeah. and if you want to liken it to what happened in real life, I mean, between uh, the nineteen well, the nineteen forties, I guess, and the nineteen nineties would have probably been the last time that a Nazi war criminal was caught. Is that correct? Or maybe into the two thousand early two thousands? Yeah, I want to say yeah, nineties, but I, I could double check. Yeah, um, two things going on here. I mean, one is I, I think that uh, obviously part of this is the test for Kira. Kira's shown a lot of growth in this show. We'll talk about that in the wrap-up, I think, too. But uh, yeah. Kira's shown growth to Cisco, and for Cisco to put more trust in her to say, yeah, I do trust you, and I will believe you to do the right job here. I think that's one thing they're looking at. The other thing is that whether it's her or Odo, you actually see the work happening in the episode. Now, we, we can... 
kind of make fun of, well, he didn't use DNA and, you know, all that stuff. But they actually do the work to narrow down to make sure that all of this stuff is on the table and all of it is irrefutable. Uh, the, the logic is sound in what they're doing, no matter who finds it. But your question is interesting to me because, you know, uh, compare the Nuremberg trials to what happened in Israel. Well, the Nuremberg trials, like I said, it was a combination of the allied governments who were conducting these trials and, and doing it very methodically. By the time you roll around to the late 50s and and it appears that uh, at least the CIA knew where Eichmann was, and there's pretty good evidence that a lot of these people were escaping to Argentina and Brazil, specifically Argentina, because there was no extradition law. What happened was you had Mossad agents going in and pulling these people out and taking them back to Israel to stand trial. Um, I think you can make an argument to to ask is this the fairest way to treat this? You know, we already had the trials with, with who we had in the 40s. Um, is this the fairest way then to treat those who didn't get caught by that net? Um, and, and, and to be fair, Eichmann had escaped several times, had moved around Europe several times before finally ending up in, in South America. Um, you can ask if they'll get a fair shake by people who experience those horrors firsthand. But what's interesting that happened then is that because these trials then took center stage and because this was happening after the fact, it renewed interest, it renewed historical interest in the the actuality of what happened and the factual story of what happened. Um, they were also very methodical in how they went about it. So those in the Israeli court who were doing the investigation, they said, you know what? I witnessed testimony, um, written records, as well as deep interrogation of the people that we caught. That's what has to go on trial here. It can't simply be a matter of vengeance because we have a name. We actually have to do the work, and we actually have to figure out where that person is coming from. That's when we talk about the, the level of guilt. Um, we actually have to find out where that person is coming from. And in the case of Eichmann, it was pretty apparent. They had determined through the interrogations 15 years later, this is somebody who believed what they were doing. This is somebody who was unrepentant. So we feel perfectly all right with the decision of the court. This is somebody who's guilty and should be put to death. Now, I think you and I could make another argument here and talk about whether or not the death penalty is appropriate. We've talked about that on our show before because Star Trek has, has explored that. Um, but in that case, whether it's historically or in this case talking about a piece of fiction, I think all of this has played out correctly to determine if somebody's guilty or not regardless of the, the point of view, then, of the people who are doing the investigation. There's one other thing in this episode that's just, um, I hate it, mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't want to bring it up, but I feel like to not bring it up, because this is really a multifaceted episode. I Look, I hung on that, that thing that, that Quark said. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't really looking at the clock when we were recording, but I, I, I imagine I talked about it for two or three minutes and it seemed like a throwaway line. There is, I don't, I'm not sure that there's anything in this episode that is actually throwaway. No. And, and honestly, when I first watched this, I thought our conversation would be about something entirely different. Um, because really? I, I, yeah, because I, I was kind of fixated on the, the death penalty aspect of it. Hmm. Um, which again is a great conversation to have. But then I found myself interested in, in other things, the, the concept of justice versus vengeance versus satisfaction from that. And it, it, a lot of that is tied into the death penalty, too. Right. You know, um, I, I'm so fascinated by, uh, uh, well, Maritza in this as Goldar Heel challenging Kira saying, um, well, look, you can kill me once. 
it doesn't take away anything that I did. Yeah. And Kira keeps getting that challenge from the people around here, and not so many words, but from Francisco and from Dax saying, you may think you want this, but you don't really necessarily want this. Um, so, but I'm sorry, I just took your tangent, went in another direction with it, just to say that, that there is something else. Yeah, that can happen over and over in this episode. Honestly, yeah. one of the things that I found absolutely horrible and what I really don't want to talk about, except I feel like to ignore it would be to sort of let go of something that's amazing in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, um, when he's playing the part of Goldar Heel, mm-hmm. um, Maritza actually uh, sets the stage for. Cardassian occupation denial. Right. I, I mean, we mean, know what happened. We yeah. know what happened. Yeah. And yet, and yet he's saying, no, 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 you only saw what we wanted you to see because we thought it would, you know, we thought you'd be easier to control if you were afraid of us. But of course, there was absolutely no reason to be afraid of us. I mean, sure, working conditions were tough, but we never, we never killed hundreds of thousands of Bajorans. Yeah. And, 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 and and I, I don't, I, I know you don't want to talk about that and I don't want to talk about that. And neither of us want to talk about the real world analog. Yeah. At the same time, it feels like it would be doing the, this episode, um, a disservice in a way. I mean, they, this is obviously not a history of world war two episode or a history of Nazi Germany episode. Uh, but man alive, did they touch on, on just a, just a ton of stuff that, that, that we are still, 25 years after this episode and, and 60, 70 years after, um, after World War II, mm-hmm. uh, stuff that we're still, uh, stuff that we're still dealing with today. You know, there, there's a line that Gul Dukat has when he's, uh, on, on the comm there and he, he describes it as the alleged improprieties during the occupation. Mm-hmm. And the, the, this is this almost Orwellian euphemistic speak. <laughs> double speak of, of of what that is. I mean, the real words, let me correct this for you, Gold Ducat, is the systematic abuse and murder of people during war in forced labor camps. You know, that that's what you're talking about. Uh, but you, you can hear that, that insidious creep of trying to change history by changing the words you use to describe it. And... I don't know if they were thinking that deeply about denial in this, but but clearly the writers are trying to draw a distinction between the Bajoran point of view and the Cardassian point of view, particularly from Cardassian military. And so far, all we know about Cardassians is military. That's pretty much their raison d'etre. Um, yeah, I, I thought that was kind of a, a chilling thing in there for that to uh, to come to the surface in this episode. From the Internet Movie Database A Cardassian, suffering from Kalinora, a disease that indicates he served in a labor camp, visits DS9. Kira is determined to convict him as a war criminal. But, I guess you know that already. Duet Man, even the title, honestly even the title... In this episode is multifaceted. I mean, certainly this is an episode that's driven largely by uh, the Maritza character and the Kira character. Uh, but he actually, Maritza shows up as two different people. He's Maritza and he's Goldar Heel. So there's another one. Uh, there are the two sides of the um, of the story. There, there's only one truth, I think, but there are the two sides of the story, certainly. I mean, there are a lot of reasons you might look at this episode and go, ah, yeah. let's call it pair. No, let's call it duo. No, wait, let's call it duet. <laughs> and so now we've hit the part of the episode where we talk about the yeah. messages, morals, and meanings. Gosh, if only there were any. And also seeing whether the episode stands the test of time. Mm. Um, uh, play your jazz, Mr. Champion. Go, wail, duet, hit it. Yeah, man. So <laughs> I thought uh, I thought about some other Trek episodes that we've discussed. Let's go all the way back to TOS, Conscience of the King. Kirk faces Kodos, the person who is responsible for the death of thousands where Kirk grew up. Kirk has to decide how to temper his impulse for vengeance with his sense of what is actually just. Um, and I also thought about more recently just Kira's arc 
we're coming up right on the end of season one of DS9. And look, look at where Kira's been uh, from questioning her loyalty and the connection that she made with Cisco back in past prologue to the more profound change in battle lines. I love how much depth we've gotten from Kira in such a short time. Um, Non-Star Trek, I, I thought just a, as a dramatic piece, as a performance piece, there was something vaguely Silence of the Lambs here. Yeah. With Kira sitting there in the jail across from this person playing this psychological game with each other. And let's talk about Harris Eulen. Uh He's remarkable. Now, first of all, he's got a great role. There's a lot for an actor to do here. And it's positively Shakespearean the way it's written. And he makes the most of it. it, it it's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, the, this show is very much like a play in the way it's written and in the way it's performed. And boy, does this hold up to repeat viewing. I savored every minute of it. And seeing the nuance in Yulin's performance, knowing where it was headed, made it even more satisfying. Uh, sometimes you know the spoiler ahead of time. You know, so watching this three, four, five times, you start to notice little moments in the performance, little things that lead up to where we go. And uh, and, and this is one of those episodes where uh, he's just magnetic. So from a production, yeah, this absolutely holds up. I think it's produced well. It's written well. Uh, it gives us so much more out of our characters who, who just, it seems like every week, with a few exceptions, <laughs> there's just so much coming from them. Uh, so this immediately kind of goes to the top for me of what we've seen out of DS9 so far. Um, so as a production, yeah, it holds up. Morals, meanings, messages, I, I think we're going to talk about those here in a second, but before we do... Talk to me about uh, the the production here. Talk to me about the story. It's amazing, and and Harris Yulin. I mean, what I'm sad about is when you did his trivia, you didn't say and you know earned a well deserved Emmy because yeah, I mean this nice. is I mean this yeah. is an amazing this is an amazing performance from him. Um, yeah, to the point that I didn't want to joke about it. Because yeah. it's an easy, it's an easy, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Imitation to do in a way, yeah, just to speak so stridently and so whatever. And, you know, we try to do something goofy in the beginning of a lot of the shows. And there's just, there's no part of this that I want to be goofy about, honestly. I mean, he's, he, yeah. his performance was incredible. The writing was incredible. And what's really interesting, huh, I love, I love a piece of work that you can talk about and realize at the end of the conversation, you only have a handle on maybe half of it. And I kind of feel like that's where we are now. Like the yeah. more we talk about it, the more it feels like there is to talk about in it. Um, I also kind of like the fact that it doesn't offer any easy solutions. I understand why the guy stabbed him in the back at the end. I get it. I get that. It's wrong. I disagree with mm -hmm. it, but I get it. I mean, there's there's not an easy solution here. I mean, we asked the question about would he have been let go? Well, maybe the reason actually they had him let go was, yes, partly for Kira's compassion, but also partly to show that even when everything's okay, everything's not going to be okay. I mean, yeah. they're just, I mean, just, yes, this this episode, when you said it goes to the top, my immediate thinking was you must be talking about Deep Space Nine. But yeah, this could easily be a... Well, I've just watched it. Ask me again in six months. But right now, it feels like this could easily be a, a, a top 10 episode of Trek across the board. Now, yeah. of course, we still have to watch Voyager and Enterprise and Discovery and, and everything all else. The other stuff. That. Right. Yeah. I hear there are going to be cartoons again at some point. We'll have to watch those. But, you know, yes, as it stands right now to what we've seen at this point, I would have no problem putting this in top 10. But yeah. Talk to me now about, I, I don't think we can possibly hit them all, but talk to me about the messages and uh, and ideas and stuff that came out of it, sir. Yeah, I mean, uh, part of the morals means messages uh, hinge on the character journey here, which is so great because when, when you make morals meanings messages something personal, I think that's when Star Trek really shines uh, as a, a piece of art, uh, as something that, that has something to say. Um, 
you know, we talked just for a brief moment about the death penalty being something that is uh, one aspect uh, of something to talk about here. Is it really just to want Goldar Heel to be executed uh, to face trial? Yes. But he challenges Kira, which I love, to to say that she can only kill him once. You know, does that really satisfy what you hope to get out of this? Um, there's a story of Kira's personal journey between vengeance and justice, true justice. But I think at the end of the day, this is an experiment in compassion. You know, how can we express compassion for our enemies? Goldar Heel is not a guy that you can feel compassion for, at least not the the version of Goldar Heel that Maritza is playing here. Um, but the story challenges Kira to see at least this Cardassian as something other than just a black and white enemy. This is somebody she's got to understand. And the brilliance here is making Maritza somebody who is complex and somebody who has uh, a, a very misguided, but definitely a sense of honor about what he's doing. Um, so can I, can I boil that down into a, a pithy, uh, you know, save the whales and, and as you like to say, don't eat paint message? No. It's not this episode, but this episode does what Trek does very well, which is to say, okay, you think you know what's right and wrong. You think you know what what the correct thing to do here is, but now we're going to dig a little bit deeper and we're going to play in that gray area to really see how compassionate you are and to really see how we can start to change perspective. Um, and, and that's what I love about this episode. Um, what else have you got for me? Well, I mean, there are a few things. I mean, yes, her journey towards compassion is great. Um, uh, the, the actually doing the work and making sure that the person that she's trying to punish should be punished is fantastic mm -hmm. as well. There's one thing though that really that really stuck out to me, and it's I will I will fully confess it is because of the times in which we record this episode. There's a patriotism in Maritza that I love. Um, she says, "Why are you doing this?" And he says, "For Cardassia. Cardassia will only survive if it stands in front of Bajor and admits the truth." He thinks the only way to accomplish that is to sacrifice himself, to offer himself up as someone who will be killed for the crimes of another, and. What what stinks is I'm not sure he's wrong. I I mean like he's I, it struck me as odd actually that Kira's like oh there are people at Cora too uh, who are going to help you. Well, <laughs> there are people at Cora too who say they're going to help you. I cannot imagine that life would have gone uh, well for him. Um, if, uh, we don't know anything about Cora too. Actually, I don't know if it was under Cardassian control. So maybe I guess it can't have been because they would have recognized his his faint at that point. But, I mean, all of that aside, especially today, it is at the very least touching to see somebody who says, if we're going to be the best that we can be, we have to, at the very least, acknowledge the worst that we've been or acknowledge how bad we can be. I mean, and that, yeah. he went about it the wrong way. I mean, he works at a university, for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> he went about it the wrong way, but um, but what he was trying to do. Well, you said it yourself. What he was trying to do was honorable. And um, if there's anything inspiring to take from the episode, I guess it might be that. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Check out the Roddenberry Podcast Network at podcast.roddenberry.com. There you'll find Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, and more to come. Now, if you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next episode, In the Hands of the Prophets. Prophets. 
some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Other shows called Duet, include the 1994 Bollywood film Duet, the 2005 Chinese film Duet, and, the 1981 Italian film title, Wait For It, Duet. And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh, oh.